everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me, I have a very special guest that I'm very excited to be having uh, on the show. You may have heard her before if you've listened to our West Side Story review. We have Lindsay from Film Strip Pod. Uh, Lindsay, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, and the we have uh, at this moment in time we have two episodes planned, uh, both both musicals. I think one's more in the traditional sense of being a musical, but um, yeah, I these these next two episodes I've been uh, really wanting to talk about for a while now, and I haven't had any luck in convincing anyone to uh, to come on. But uh, when we did our West Side Story with Jay back in, I guess it was December at this point. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I I immediately knew at that point, I'm like, yeah, I really want to have Lindsay back on. I'm always impressed with whenever you're on a film strip and, and your knowledge and, and the experience you bring to the episodes. And I think these next two episodes that we have planned, you're going to add a very unique and uh, great uh, overall um, perspective. So the first episode we'll be talking about is uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, the Jonathan Larson musical biopic um, produced by Lynn Manuel Miranda. I, I always forget his name, but, uh, but, uh, so this came out and I believe it was December of 2021 and I'm sure it was pushed back with, with COVID and it was, uh, released on Netflix. And this was actually something that I was really excited about, but, uh, before we get into, the, the film of Tick, Tick, Boom, I kind of wanted to throw you the general question, uh, or I guess the questions that we can answer in however way you'd like, uh, talking about Jonathan Larson at first, um, and then talking about you know, your experience with John Jonathan Larson and his other musicals, because going into this, I really only was able to experience Rent, which I feel like a vast majority of people going into this are either going to fall in the camp of like they're super familiar with Jonathan Larson or they've seen Rent and that's pretty much it. So yeah, Lindsay, I'll throw it off to you. What's your experience uh, with Jonathan Jonathan Larson? I I'm actually in your boat. I am I was a Rent only person, but I was a big Rent fan and just really did not have a whole lot of background knowledge on what he had done before that. Um, I, when Rent first came out, I remember how big of a deal it was. I used to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year. I still do. And they had, as part of that parade, they usually had the new musical, like the new great Tony Award winning musical and various people doing numbers from that. And that was my first ever experience with Rent. And then when it came out on video, I was actually in college and I obsessed over it. I was a theater major at the time. So my friends and I all went out to watch it. I bought it the second it came out on DVD. I've seen it a number of times. And so to watch Tick, Tick, Boom in relation to rent and seeing how so many pieces of rent were incorporated into it both musically and story-wise you can really see how Jonathan Larson wove his personal life into the writing of rent so that was really really cool for me to to watch and so when you say when you when you say tick tick boom do you mean <laughs> this um this Movie. film or okay yeah. good because mm -hmm. um yeah i like I only knew Rent going into it. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I'd seen Rent, you know, when I was in high school and it was mostly like all the people that I knew that were in like theater in, you know, when you're, you know, middle school into high school and everyone like obsessing over it, um, you know, singing different moments from all like the major songs of it and i remember seeing the movie and being like okay yeah this is pretty good um i didn't really have much of that appreciation for it um and but it was interesting just this like this this figure this tragic figure of jonathan larson but there always seemed to be this like mystery allure to him especially among the the people that at least i knew like anecdotally and there's also like some misinformation you know i and we'll talk about it too, and that there was, I guess, a pretty common misconception that people believe that he died of AIDS, HIV, and that's just not true. But it's it, but it's interesting of um, that that was like a general perception. And I feel like as I've gotten older, um, I've been seeing a lot of trends towards rent being a there people have been having a love-hate relationship with rent which has been interesting to see um so i did look up uh just for because i couldn't articulate my thoughts super well on rent so uh, i was watching a lot of video essays and mostly going on reddit to try and get a ba more balanced approach which was you know interesting going to reddit for balance but uh if you go on youtube <laughs> and type in rent analysis a lot of it is going to be um or at least anecdotally, a lot of really harsh critiques of Rent. Um, I think I'm thinking of Lindsay Ellis as like the big name that I think really started attacking Rent, and I think she attacked more of the film than the theater production. But she still there's some bleed over with the two. Um, I'd say my relationship with Rent is I don't want to say love hate because it's a little too harsh. I'd say like dislike, but leans more towards like. Um, I mean, I think the effect of, of Rent and everything it, it stands for, like it, it was a huge movement and moment in theater, um, especially with the representation of gay, bisexual characters, even if they, they do fall into tropes that are can be problematic. But I think for the time of the, well, it was it early early nine or mid nineties uh, late two or early two thousands that rent came out. Am I getting this right? I, for, I'm not it sure is, the timeline. Yeah. So rent the movie came out, I believe in 2005, I might have to search that um, to be 100% sure. Um, it was early aughts and the musical I think was late nineties. Okay. And it, and it is interesting too. And, and I think, what you do, despite whatever criticisms you have of Rent, I think we can all agree of the passion that Jonathan Larson puts into that work of Rent and just the, his understanding of music, you know, especially in Rent, all the different styles he tackles with, you know, any, you know, the traditional like pop, rock, but as well as, you know, there's jazz, tango, uh, like there's a little bit of gospel in there as well. It comes from someone that, it's not it's not something that you just learn in school like his appreciation of music theory and how the different styles blend and work and flow together it comes from someone that is like truly um someone that truly understands the language of music and i also think that the again re regardless what you think of rent the soundtrack are uh, is pretty damn 
near unforgettable. Um, I mean, I, I can't think. I bet if you went up and you sang like a few bars of um, Seasons of Love, everyone almost knows where it's from or at least heard it. Um, some people might think it's that song from The Office when Michael it leaves, but <laughs> um, but it's there's a reason it's in like the zeitgeist of like popular uh, theater and soundtracks. Um, and there, yeah, there's definitely a lot of songs that I find myself humming and going back to and find like the beauty of that um, but I also think the the theme of hope among uh, amongst like tragedy and just like uh, kind of sadness and despair um, set with the backdrop of like HIV AIDS epidemic in America in uh, Alphabet City in New York City um, and I, th I especially in the relationship between Roger and Mimi in that you know they both are afflicted with HIV AIDS and Mimi has more of the the mindset of oh like no day but today live every moment like it's your last but kind of uses that in a very toxic mindset whereas Roger almost goes the opposite way it's like yeah like you know it could be our last day but that's not an excuse not to take care of yourself and ha and not have hope and I think that despite you know Mark being the audience conduit that's his that's the character the main character quote unquote I think the theme is really seen through the character of Roger and Mimi. So um, rent can be its own conversation maybe one day, but I do think it's important go and like having like understanding our relationship with rent going into tick, tick, boom, because uh, I think there's, that's a, what's on a lot of people's minds. And I think the film knows that too, because there is a lot of reference, whether it's, the, you know cameo subtle subtlety references to rent or the uh very apparent uh opening and closing narration which i'll give a hint of that i'm not a big fan of the opening and closing narration but we can get into that as well yeah i i agree i think i i do want to interject i watched this with someone who is not familiar with Rent, has never seen Rent, and is not familiar with Jonathan Larson. And we had a fairly in-depth discussion after, after the film. And I think it's safe to say that if you have very little prior knowledge of the two, it is difficult to make sense of this hmm. film. Um, it's not... I because I've I've watched a lot of biopics on like there's a lot of them on Netflix on Prime on a number of different streaming things um, or streaming platforms on like Biggie and Tupac and Puff Daddy and you can watch all of those and in general most people are very familiar with with that music and how iconic it is. And while people are fam are familiar with some of the iconic music in Rent, without that foundational knowledge and not having seen it, I don't know. I think that, that Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie may have leaned in a little too much to the assumption that anyone watching it has that foundational knowledge. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess I can. So I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> that is interesting because I, I watched this with my girlfriend, and there was I, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you you do the same when with when you get when you watch a movie with a movie buff, or if you watch you know like a, a like a like a musical or a show with someone that is you know has experience in like theater and and acting. We 
we try to restrain ourselves from from talking throughout it but my girlfriend was asking you know some questions about rent and in relation to tick tick boom like well i don't know much about tick tick boom but um I do know a little bit about rent, so I was giving a little bit of context and backdrop to what um, what what was going on in the film. But I guess this can transition too. And what are your thoughts on Lin Manuel Miranda? Um, I again, as a layman, um, I've seen you know the Disney Plus version of Hamilton. I haven't been able to you know, go see the show, uh, even when it came, I think it's still playing in Philly. Like I'm in the Philly area right now. So I, I'm pretty sure it's still playing in Philly. Um, mm-hmm. But when it came to Philly, you know, it, it was the biggest thing. My Brian, my twin brother, he actually was able to see it. Um, and, uh, you know, huge, I mean, almost, I'd say the level of rent with Hamilton, just how it is just sweeping in popularity. Um and I'd seen it, and I definitely think it's a, uh, it's something you have to see in person to experience it, that like to get that full effect. Because I watched it on Disney Plus, was like, yeah, okay, I get it, I understand why people are really enjoying this, but um, I think that's a show that you can't really fully appreciate unless you're there, just because of all the, the literal and metaphorical pieces turning of that show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what's your opinion? of uh Lynn Manuel Miranda. I I have not actually seen any of Lynn Manuel Miranda's shows in person including Hamilton. I have seen the Disney Plus Hamilton as well. I think we're on the same page as far as that goes. I was incredibly familiar with the music before I watched it on Disney Plus. But I think that it I like him. I wasn't a huge fan of Encanto, to be fair, but I'm also an adult and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's fine. But overall, I think he, I think he's doing a lot of the same things that Jonathan Larson did. And so for him to direct this film, Tick, Tick, Boom, it made sense to me because Jonathan Larson effectively did something in Broadway that had not ever been done up to that point. He wrote really the first rock opera that had ever been written and put on Broadway. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote what I think we could probably call the first ever rap opera that has ever been put on Broadway. And both shows were massive hits. I mean, Hamilton will also probably run for 12 years in the same way that Rent did. And people are going to talk about it for decades to come. And it made it made sense to me that he was doing that. And I don't know if you caught a lot of the Hamilton references throughout Tick, Tick, Boom!, but there were a lot of Alexander Hamilton splashes throughout. So he's constantly talking about running out of time, which writing like you're running out of time is a huge song in Hamilton. And also a quick note, did you see Lin-Manuel Miranda's cameo? Yep. As yeah, I, it was in there like when the first he, thing I saw. Yeah. I was like, oh shit, it's him. When he popped in, I was like, yeah, look at that. It's like Stan Lee in all of his movies, just it, popping in for a few and seconds. And we'll talk about the Sunday number because that, even though I'm not familiar with 
a lot of uh, like Broadway and theater performers, I knew that that scene, I'm like, we're getting a lot of close-ups on random patrons in this, in the moon dance uh, mm -hmm. diner. And I'm like, I bet those are all like famous uh, theater people. And I, I only caught one. And I, the only reason, and I didn't even know he was an act, like a, like a theater person because uh, he was in Mr. Robot, which was a, one of my favorite shows for a little while. Um, but yeah, and there, yeah, that, that's it's an interesting point that there because so Tick Tick Boom was uh, was the uh, the precursor to Rent, and and what I liked about so earlier when I mentioned oh were you talking about the film you're talking about the um, his musical <clears throat> because you know Tick Tick Boom was written by Jonathan Larson as the precursor to Rent as this one man or. I mean, one man with a with a band um, rock monologue, and mm -hmm. and then writing Rent leading into it. But this is it was written by Stephen Levinson, and or as the, the as the screenplay. And what I thought was interesting about this, as doing research, was that Tick Tick Boom as the backdrop of actually Jonathan Larson writing the his musical prior to this as superbia as putting all of his like you know most of his you know mid to late 20s eight years into this uh into this writing and then it quote unquote fails because people don't understand it i thought that was an interesting backdrop and and focusing more on jonathan larson pre-rent although there are lots and lots of references to rent whether it's very more subtle or stuff that's very overt and kind of in your face about it um but yeah and i guess a quick aside of lin-manuel miranda for me i uh, i mean i like him i i i, I don't have the understand i don't have the uh i guess the knowledge to really have anything other than like yeah i really like this guy um he he seems to be a very de decisive uh figure in the theater world and i don't really understand why i don't know if you can shed a little bit more light on that because every i like all the reviews that i was seeing on like letterbox and even reddit people either said oh it's great when he's you know behind the camera not in front of it or other people are saying oh he makes ridiculous decisions even behind the camera <laughs> and he's just like this overrated figure in theater and i don't really understand why because i don't think i have either the knowledge to uh, make those assertions or I just can't see because no one really explains their reasoning why they think he's overrated. So I don't know if you yeah. can shed any light on that. I, I can shed a little bit. I mean, everyone I'm sure has their own reasons. I really like him both on and off stage. Um, I've liked him in, in a lot of things that, that he's worked on. Again, Encanto wasn't my favorite, but I appreciated it for what it was. And, you know, it was something new and different. I think Moana, he had a huge hand in, in writing that one as well. And that was, was brilliant in, in my personal opinion. But I think a lot of people feel that Lin-Manuel Miranda's style, his uh, both writing, acting, um, directing, composing is very one note. And he has a very distinct 
sound. And when you hear his voice or you hear something that's written by him, it is very clearly Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I think people take issue with that. I think that his directing of Tick, Tick, Boom showed that he can break out of that one note, you know, show pony or whatever, whatever you want to call him. Um, and I think he tries to to do things that are a little different and stretch his own talent. You know, he wants to continue to improve and explore new things artistically. And sometimes you just fall back onto your own bag of tricks because you know that that works and you know that that's what people like. And I think people might find that off-putting or annoying, or I've seen this before, this isn't new. Um, for me, that is not an issue at all. I think that he, he stretches himself enough for me to continue to enjoy the things that he's worked on. And I was incredibly impressed with this specifically because I felt like he did a lot of justice to Jonathan Larson's style of writing and composing. Yeah. So I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was because I remember watching this and being totally in enraptured and engrossed and just so into the movie that um and and i remember saying this to my girlfriend i was like this is how i think the modern musical genre this is the direction that it needs to go down um and i think it all starts with the opening number of 3090 and um i and as a quick aside, like I mentioned it earlier, and I'll probably say it at the end as well, and we could say it here as well, in that that opening um, narration, I thought it was very unnecessary in that I almost feel like it's it, – it, that's a trope that I, I couldn't – I just thought it was really odd that we're, go, we're going into that, and I just felt like it was almost like you're spoon-feeding the audience. I'm just mm -hmm. like, well, who is this guy? I'm like, well, you'll tell us through the movie, and I, I just think it's kind of lazy to, to be like, oh, well, this is Jonathan Larson. He did this. This is what he did, blah, blah, blah. Like, he was a great person, and I, okay, I'll get, I'll get that, and – I, uh, I think the, the montage of stuff is great, but when we just start with the Susan character, you know, just explaining who this guy is and how he's just goofy and, 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 and amazing and, uh, you know, he's going to write Rent and do this, like, we, we don't need that. We'll just go right into, hi, I'm John, with the start of, um, of Tick, Tick, Boom, which I thought was interesting because I've tried to find versions or just any... Um, recordings of the original tick tick boom uh, uh rock monologue recording and i've only found like an 18 minute burst but it is on this this like it, this vhs probably greatest form at the time but now is just like so antiquated and outdated um but it's just starting with just this vhs copy of him walking out saying hi i'm john and then we get right into the opening of the monologue saying oh i'm 30 I'm running out of time and like I've been tr focusing on writing this this like this new futuristic musical but you know I'm almost 30 and then we cut right into uh 3090 and I felt like it was such an electric way 
to open this film and I was getting I don't know so I love Whiplash and I was getting so many I don't know if you've seen Whiplash but I've I've not oh man so (laughs) I mean you should definitely watch that uh because that is an awesome movie but at the end of Whiplash I don't want to I'm not going to spoil it but let's just say there is a big number and the editing the frenetic editing of this opening number and even the lighting like I think now once if you want to go and see Whiplash you'll you you can't really unsee it the editing the lighting and the energy of the scene is I think very reminiscent of what Giselle did in the end of Whiplash except the tone is a little bit different in the end of Whiplash it's it's a little bit more intense and uh and gripping and very emotion filled where here it's it's the kind of the same idea but it's a, a little bit more of a a grabbing introduction and and like I said, Whiplash is one of my favorite movies. So when I, if I'm already comparing the end of Whiplash, which I think is arguably one of the greatest mm, 10, 15 minute closers of a movie ever put the film, uh, I'm already like in, ready to go. And I also was surprised that Andrew Garfield could sing the way he did. So I was just from 3090, the opening number, I was like fully invested. And even looking into um, the set design and looking at that rock monologue, tick, tick, boom, like VHS recording, like it seems like a lot of the details, some are obviously blown up for the the theatrics of it. Um, Like I think the stage didn't seem as big and the lighting wasn't as dramatic and the stage wasn't as or in like the theater wasn't as big, but here he's able to make something and personify it and make it this huge grand spectacle. So I'm, I'm into the movie right from 3090. And honestly, when our Spotify, you know, what you listen to most comes out next year, I'm most likely going to have 3090 as my uh, number one hit. Cause I've been listening to this song nonstop since I've saw this back in December. It's, it's a great song and it's a great way to introduce the fact that he is really constantly and harshly comparing himself to what these great writers did by certain ages. And I don't know if you've known any writers in your travels or any other theater people in your travels, but everyone that I've known anecdotally is equally as neurotic and equally as well so-and-so did this by the age of 27 which was always like the magic number and you know I have to do this by this age and there's just so much pressure that they put on themselves and then it's like yeah but there, there are other people who haven't done stuff but you get inside your own head and you just like forget about everything and everyone else and you have this end goal in mind and you are just sprinting for it as fast as you can and I thought that was I mean as as realistic as a musical can be but that was as realistic as I have I think ever seen that represented in 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 a film or otherwise. Yeah, and it does set up that idea of just like this obsession with legacy and mm-hmm. and what do, like, what am I going to do? Which, like you said, um, that theme is very prevalent in Hamilton of just 
who who's gonna like who's gonna write my story who's gonna remember my story and um and i think that's and i, and I think for someone in theater and uh, especially with the like the tragedy of jonathan larson you know he apparently he was trying to always establish himself in the in broadway in the theater world since i guess the mid 80s or the early 80s when he's pretty much started writing uh superbia and and i and i do really like the the constraint that we have here and tick tick boom of him you know i'm writing this this masterpiece that i've been and it has to be a masterpiece because i've sunk eight years of my life into this into this piece and making it this like avant-garde very experimental something that no one's seen before and it's so experiment it's so new and so experimental that like no one understands it and and uh and i think this opening number we really do get that uh it gets that, that gets across and as we transition into you know mo more and more of him I, I actually do really like the the style of the film tick tick boom because it, it seems so much more personal and it wasn't what i was expecting going into this i was expecting way more overt references to rent and what rent represents um mm -hmm. and we we sort of get the idea this is the, i think the biggest reference to rent is the idea of like the bohemian lifestyle but i think the difference between rent and here is that Jonathan Larson as a character is a little bit more sympathetic, whereas I feel like most of the characters in Rent are um, annoying and just awful, like despicable human beings, um, which I guess goes in like goes into like the problems that I have with Rent, especially that. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's kind of the point. It's like the rebellious nature of youth and like the Bohemians. And maybe that warped perspective of like you know we like uh, we choose to live in poverty, but this sense of entitlement. Um, I think Jonathan Larson still exhibits a lot of those qualities, but it's not as like grating, and I think it's a little bit more forgivable because I feel like it taps into something of you know we all know what it's like to hit the grind, and we all, especially feel like us as creatives uh, or creative type people know what it's like to sink all this effort into making something. And then either no one listens or no one with the podcast, either no one listens or no one watches or no one appreciates. And there is that, uh, that, that, that constant battle of just trying to get over that, that fear that you're going to put yourself out there with all this work. And then no one's going to care or look at it or appreciate it. Um, so I really do like with the writing of Jonathan Larson and and as we like get past 3090 and get more of into like a personal look into his life and and his mindset as a character. Yeah, and I I think that it is, and we have that moment where he is just absolutely crushed to find that this thing that he's poured his heart and soul into for eight years is you know now he's got to start all over and the his um uh what is it his managers his agent was straight up just like here's what you do you just have to keep doing it and in that moment when he goes to his friend, Michael, and he's like, I give up, I can't do this. I want a job. I want all this. 
And it's like, that's a very real decision that I think a lot of artists have to make in that moment, because the first thing you do and the first thing you write and the first audition you go on doesn't land. And a lot of times neither does the second or the third or the fourth or the hundredth. You have to go on thousands of auditions before you land one professional audition. And I'm glad that they talked about that, like his friend Michael mesh or mentioned that at one point and he's a mediocre actor and you learn that quickly when you're going to these cattle calls and trying to get uh, an audition when when you're not in a union yet and it's tough and so you meet this fork in the road and you have to make that decision and for Jonathan Larson I think he had too many people in his life who recognized that he was meant to be creative and meant to create the next great, great thing. And I think he had too many people who were not willing to let him quit. And he still could have gone the other direction, you know, like many people do and gotten his, his nine to five and written jingles and, and lived a maybe longer, happier life. Who knows? But he, he wanted to create this great thing and he went down that other fork. Yeah. And I think going into, I love the, um, like the passion that Lin-Manuel Miranda is bringing to this too. Even just like, I, like we mentioned the details of like the stage where he initially performed Tick, Tick, Boom, like the VHS, like setting that scene. But even like the details of Jonathan Larson's apartment, uh, they really faithfully recreated this shitty Soho apartment. Uh, even yeah. apparently the, um, they had all these like reference photos from friends of Jonathan Larson, even the um, like, uh, what is it? The, the bookshelves with the leaning uh yeah the, the the leaning bookshelves from all the weight of the books like these shitty these shitty uh bookshelves apparently that was super accurate he would just have all of these uh all of these books and mute and, and music records and vinyls and and everything like books strewn all over the place and they were really paying a careful attention to these details of this like small apartment that he could barely afford and um and I think like Boho Days, the next song uh, where they're having this big party and it's supposed to be this impromptu number that uh, he's trying to liven up the party again. And I think here there's, you know, that more infusion. I think, what is it, Scott, the accountant that is like totally removed yeah. from the theater world and he comes in and honestly, he I think he'd be he's like my sur surrogate where I have like no experience and he's just like yeah this is cool man this is awesome yeah. and like they're making fun of him but he is just so like in the moment and aloof probably that he doesn't recognize that Jonathan Larson is like being sarcastic and like kind of picking fun at him but when Jonathan Larson is just super sarcastic and like kind of a dick to him he walks away and he's like man that guy's awesome and then yeah boho days like this big impromptu number which I've I've hung out with you know theater people or like musical theater people dancers and they do shit like this maybe not to this level but they'll just start like dancing and break out a number and at the end you know he's just like that was awesome I'm like yeah that would be pretty awesome if you were just sitting around and people just break well if it kept happening I'm sure it'd be annoying but when the party is <laughs> just dying down and someone just knows the right part right thing to do to just 
get these people back. They read their room super well. And, um, and that kind of goes into like the other, you know, like no more when they're talking about like quote unquote selling out. And these are the moments that as the film, I really like that Jonathan Larson, he is always viewing things as music, but it's not like, like Dancer in the Dark. I don't know if you've seen Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark or, mm. um, or like, what is it? The Adventures of Walter Mitty, like the Ben Stiller movie. And where I'm yeah. bringing these at is that, you know, those characters daydream as uh, an escape from their, from their lives. Dance in the Dark is, um, for those who haven't seen it for context of what I'm talking about, is uh, Lars von Trier, early 2000s with, um, with the Norwegian singer Bjork. And that she plays a uh, a pretty much like legally blind mother who is kind of going through life and just wants to protect her son. And then like tragedy befalls her and she is ultimately always trying to protect her son. But the um, the whole, I think, draw to the movie is that it's a musical, but definitely not in the traditional sense. And the um and especially shot by Lars von Trier like right after the dogma 95 movement and so um he she uses um music as an escape from her life so she I guess finds life super boring and just in her head she'll just be creating uh musical moments like in the spot and it works so organically with the film and I'll say the ending as well, like the one of the final ending like numbers is so like tragically beautiful and like the juxtaposition of the emotions that you're feeling like building up to this moment. Um, but she uses it as an escape from her um, from kind of like her shitty life. And then like Walter Mitty with the Ben Stiller film, like he daydreams because he is bored with life. But here. Um, I like the organic nature of how like the music intertwines with Jonathan Larson's life in that it's not an escapism. It's just always on his mind and he's always thinking of a new song. They even mention it where he's like, oh, I'm having writer's block. I can't write this one song, but I can write a song about sugar in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, why, why do you do that? It's like, oh, it's an exercise. I can make a song out of everything, which I can kind of relate to not so much writing music, but I always, as like a writing exercise uh, with like making short films, I always, I'll try and listen to a song. I'm like, okay, write a scene around that song. Like I could try and write a scene around almost any music and uh, I just use it as a creative exercise. It doesn't have, doesn't go anywhere. I write stuff down. I'm like, oh, that'd be pretty neat. But I, one, as a creative person, I definitely really related to that. But I also really like that in context of the film, that it's not just like, pulling you out of the moment it's almost it's it's interweaved very well into this uh this narrative right and in specifically the sugar moment to piggyback off that so I watched it with my Brian not to be confused with your brother Brian or Brian from Filmstrip (laughs) so many Brian's but as soon as he started talking about the sugar thing, he looked at me and he goes, you do that. I don't think about it as an exercise. I just make songs up all day long, all the time. <laughs> um, and it's just, so maybe it is very much like a theater kid, musical theater kid type of thing. But most of most of the songs are about pets, <laughs> to be fair. Are you like Linda from Bob's Burgers? You just start I am, making up songs? I am. I am um, 110% Linda from Boss Burgers. <laughs> that is exactly the type of music that I write. 
<laughs> just in the moment. I do that with my girlfriend too. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, so I am very much into this movie and and I feel like it's as the film is progressing that I, I again, I mentioned it earlier that I feel like this is what like the new modern musical should be in that it's it's drawing from things, but it's it, it's what, well, we, we may disagree with this next statement, but um, like, I feel like this, what Tick, Tick, Boom is doing well is what, to me, West Side Story, like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story didn't capture what I think La La Land tried to emulate, but didn't quite capture. Because I don't think that, especially with La La Land, I don't think that Chazelle really knew how to translate the movies that he was referencing and that he was inspired by Spielberg I I think has a little bit of a past because he was adapting something that was already established but Mm -hmm. where with La La Land it was I'll give credit where credit was due he tried but I think I think Chazelle watched um, Jacques Demy a little too much and didn't quite understand what made Jacques Demy work, especially with the French wave new movement. And, uh, or yeah, and, and he didn't, and he just didn't nail it with La La Land. At least that's just my opinion. But here I, I'm thinking, and uh, my opinion is that he is able to balance, you know, modern audiences, uh, sensibilities of what they view as exciting and what how music how musicals have been shifting and changing in the last like 60 70 years but he's also able to still like make references to uh mostly rent the 90s musical um while adding his own flair to it and i and i think he's also telling a very compelling story that people can relate to especially people and I think our age demographic uh people that are going through these hitting these milestones that um we like you know when we were teenagers and when you're in your 20s I mean I'm 26 so I'm not quite there yet but my girlfriend when we were watching this she turned 30 uh I think two weeks after we watched this and so like that 30 90 and all these moments of him just being afraid of of turning 30 and 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 leaving his his young adult quote unquote life behind. Like she was like, Oh my God, I, I totally relate to this in an entirely different way that I didn't because, you know, I'm, I still got four more years in my, in my, uh, in my twenties. And, uh, and, and even that when people are still asking me like, Oh, you know, you're in your late twenties now, you're not in your mid, you're not in your early twenties, you're not in your mid twenties, you're in your late twenties. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's just my mentality, but it is interesting that, um, I think this is like a story like this is geared towards people in that late twenties, early thirties, or even just like when they're like 39, turning 40, 49, Mm -hmm. 50, like they're at that, like it's for people that are about to enter the next milestone and almost like transition into another moment of their lives. Yeah. And I think, I think there's something to that and to this musical being maybe the way things are going in that it focuses very much on an individual story and how that story fits in with the greater world at large. And I think especially for, uh, I mean, honestly, I'm sure a lot of people kind of 
are still trying to figure out like where they fit in to this world at large. And so I'm sure that speaks to uh, a number of people. All that said, though, um, 30s is like a great decade. So, you know, fully <laughs> sprint into it <laughs> and enjoy every year of it. Yeah. And 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 now here, especially like once we get past that opening and it's even like sprinkled throughout, there's lots of talk about um, with Jonathan Larson with, you know, the HIV AIDS um, mm-hmm epidemic and a lot of his friends being affected by this and um and I do appreciate that later on they kind of this is the character moment because I think Jonathan Larson is so obsessed with this with with superbia the workshop that he like cares about his friends but he doesn't quite grasp like the severity of a lot of this because he's so self-obsessed and it doesn't take it takes a little a while into the movie when Michael, one of his best friends, uh, who we see throughout the film, like one of his childhood friends, uh, mentions like, yes, I have, I have, I have HIV. I'm, I'm, my, my time is limited. And it, and it's that reality shock of where he's like, oh, I, you don't know anything. Or uh, Jonathan Larson says, oh, you don't know anything about, you know, wasting time. Like you have everything established. It's fine. Like you're fine. And Michael just says, no, like I know more about, um, about uh about limited time than you than you will ever know and and i think in that and it's almost that entitlement that is in like the, the prevalent like the first act of this movie that i have an issue with like the mark character in rent because mark mark in rent is very similar to jonathan larson in, in mm-hmm. this film in the first act where he's just so like kind of aloof to what people like he's aware of people's problems but he has no basic understanding of what it's like but he he thinks he does and my issue with mark and ren is like he never has that like that that epiphany moment of like oh shit like my problems aren't that bad compared to my friends or these other people um but here i do appreciate how jonathan larson actually has that moment of like oh wow like i've been so self-obsessed with what i'm working on that i have been ignoring everything else that's going around me and that's includes um all the conflict with his girlfriend with the Susan character mm-hmm. uh, wanting to t- wanting to take a dance instruction job in the Berkshires I have no idea where that is but uh, it's not Soho and he doesn't want to move there that's all I need to know um, and that that almost also represents like the idea of selling out uh, his bohemian artist lifestyle and values um, and he doesn't want to sell it, which is also another theme prevalent in rent um but yeah this is i was interested uh, i'm assuming you watched it with your brian um and or whoever is the one that said oh i have no understanding of rent yeah like, yeah it was it the hiv aids um like backdrop with because there, there are a lot of those similar themes is this when he was uh struggling to like kind of piece it all together or like what, no what? no I think just the storyline in general was hard to follow because if you think about it it is a movie about a writer who is doing a one-man show about a play that he wrote 
And everything about that is intertwined to also incorporate elements of rent into it mm -hmm. for the greater audience. And there is a lot of, there is a lot to unpack there. And the storyline in general is, is difficult to follow. Yeah, I, I can, I, can I mean, see there that. are a lot of, there are a lot of quick cuts. So, you know, you're going from, from one thing to the other very quickly and and it's it's hard to follow if you're if especially if you've never seen rent before and and you aren't really sure like where where it's going or haven't haven't had a ton of of exposure to like I mean really this was a play within a play within a film that's a biopic and so there's just it's just like a Russian nesting doll but the nesting dolls keep getting placed in and out of each other constantly yeah. throughout the movie. I think it's uh, it is interesting because it does add a little bit more. I don't want to say context to to him writing Rent, but it's it it the payoff is that moment at the end when he's talking to his um his agent and she says, you know, I suggest you like your next one you stick to something that you know, which is ironic because I. I wrote down, I was like, oh, that's Rent. And then I was like, wait, no, it's Tick, Tick, Boom that's, that comes yeah, after yeah. Su Superbia. Um, but I think like you were saying, it's if you know Rent and you know the stories of, you know, it really focuses on these uh, marginalized communities, these mm -hmm. poor marginalized communities in uh, New York City's uh, like poverty stricken areas, you'd be like, oh yeah, of course, the next logical, if you know Jonathan Larson and Rent, like, oh yeah, that's Rent. But you're like, oh wait, no, he's like Tick, Tick, Boom is the next one that yeah. is then setting up for Rent. Um, but I think- I think his interaction too with his friend Michael and Michael telling him that he is running out of time is that that opened him up and he got out of his own self-absorbed head. Like he was already a great composer. He had a ton of knowledge. He wrote this, you know, I, I guess semi-well-written piece called Superbia, but there was no human element to it. And I think that him finally having that moment that opened him up to experiencing human elements outside of himself so that he was actually seeing and interacting with the people around him and putting more people around him first instead of just focusing on writing all the time, I think was a big turning point in his career because it allowed him to, to put those human elements back into his shows. And then we get Tick, Tick, Boom, and then we get Rent. Yeah, and I think those two, like starting to humanize, those humanizing moments, definitely it, it comes together when Michael says that he is HIV positive. But I think the, the therapy number is also, I think, my second favorite moment of um, the entire piece when um, it's therapy is the name of the number and it's this two, it's this couple that is having yeah, an argument that was good. Yeah. and it's intercutting between him and who, Vanessa Hutchins, I didn't even realize that was her until midway through the movie <laughs> of High School Musical fame. 
And I was like, oh shit, that's her. Um, my girlfriend actually pointed out to me. I'm like, no, that's not her. I'm like, it is. <laughs> but um, it's this, it's them. And she like killed it in this as well. Her vocal range is like really fitting for here. Um, but it's it's uh this this couple arguing, which is interesting when you see when you see this rendition of Tick Tick Boom and how they do therapy versus like the actual stage production of Tick Tick Boom, where it's like it's more ang like anger and it's more like cathartic, which is like the, it's it's literally an, it's a couple arguing, so it's a lot more emotion behind that um, behind that number. But here, it's almost like they're they're acting as it, it, it the, the number is really cool and how it's edited, but it is a little strange how they're acting as like marionettes who are very mm -hmm. robotic and um are almost like repressing their emotions which i guess is something about that um but i do like how it's intercut with this this argument and we get that other moment when you know they make up and they hug and he's you know his fingers are uh, like it's like a piano and he's writing a song about or he's thinking how can I write a song about what is going mm -hmm. on in this moment and it's kind of that cliche of like he can't switch off but I think that this is another moment where he's it, it's more of a this is his life as opposed to like escapism um, like he's not trying to if anything he's trying to be engrossed fully more in the moment but not as like a cathartic therapeutic I'm trying to mend this relationship. It's how can I turn this into a song because I have writer's block. But, yeah. and I think that is a little bit more of an, op an eye-opening moment because then he loses the girl and he does genuinely care about her because I think when she calls him out on, he's like, oh shit, I was doing that. But of course he mm -hmm. denied it. Um, but it's the acting of Andrew Garfield that you get that conflicted, like, oh man, I was doing that, but I'm not like, disappointed that I that I was doing that but then we get followed by um like not too long after that is uh Michael saying I have HIV um which also is pretty um like shocking to the the audience as well I mean I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't see it coming right but it's yeah. also it's not just dropped you know we have those little moments throughout sprinkled throughout of of uh Michael be saying, oh, I, I need to talk to you. You know, I also like my livelihood is also being attacked. I'm I'm running out of time. And, but it's not until a little bit late. They let that just marinate there. And then they finally drop the uh, they finally drop it of I have I'm HIV positive. And I really do love that moment, too, when he says that and they're at work and he has a business call and he says, I have to take this. And he picks up that phone and switches it, which I think was just I think very telling of homosexuals who are HIV positive at that time when they're going through this very scary life altering disease that you know nothing about and then they have to pick up the phone and just pretend like everything's fine because yeah. they're such a marginalized community and uh and their way of life and their um and their lifestyle was being attacked and but they can't express that frustration to anyone um and I think it's very it's it, it's a very powerful scene too when he's when certain when Michaels just starts you know crying and singing is this real life with the backdrop of just Jonathan Larson having this like mental implosion of just everything is crumbling around me um so any any thoughts about any or any final thoughts about that before we get into uh, I guess him finally closing tick tick boom and 
right in that writer's block that uh, I guess Stephen Sondheim sort of created because he wanted to uh, really impress him, which I don't know if that actually happened or not, but we'll get into Stephen Sondheim a little bit later as well. Um, Cool. Yeah, no, I don't have anything to add to that. Cool. So we get like the next sequence of um, the... Uh, what, what was the song it's when he's swimming in the well, he's literally swimming oh it's literally called yeah. swimming um <laughs> the song and i i as a as a swimmer i thought that was really interesting um i don't know if jonathan larson was an avid swimmer if he swam laps i can understand why someone would do that um i mean i don't swim anymore i think like swimming collegiately and competitively kind of just kick the urge of like wanting to swim laps like out of my system um i've sw- i've swam more laps than most people will do in their entire lifetime so i don't think i want to do that but i understand like you get into that groove and that rhythm that you know you can just focus on you can let your mind wander when you just get into that rhythm it's very um it can be very soothing and cathartic to some people um and I, and this is again the the visual flair and style um, of the entire piece. I really enjoy. I, I really like that moment when he just goes back underwater and you know he he wipes away the 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 marker of the pool or like the the the, the depth or um, the length of the pool marker mm-hmm. and it's like almost like sand and then it turns into music notes and then he sees the music written before him, which I can't I. I have a very elementary understanding of music theory so I couldn't I couldn't hear that melody but I am hoping that it's the melody that we were hearing that I thought that would have been pretty cool other than just random notes but I can't answer that question but I did really like the um the style of that scene and just kind of everything being put together which is then followed immediately by him cleaning his air cleaning his his apartment finding his zen and Mm -hmm. uh and just kind of just hunkering down and sitting there and then his power gets turned off, which I like the, 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 the theme of like, he's just totally disconnected from any distraction. He just writes it by candlelight and gets his final song out. Yeah. Like he gets it done the night before <laughs> he was supposed to show it. And I, I had written down a note, thank God for sight reading. And then very shortly after he was talking to you know, one of his main actresses who was like, oh, the show doesn't start for an hour plus, you know, it's, it's okay that no one's here. And, and when it, when he kind of had that realization of like, oh, right. I have no idea what time it is. And, and then he just says, can you sight read? She goes, yeah and they just he gets down on one knee and presents it to her just waiting for for what she has to say and that was that was the big that was the big moment the big song that everybody loved brought the house down yeah even steven sondheim who we haven't really mentioned so far because he he does uh come up quite a bit and obviously steven sondheim one of the arguably one of the greatest most influential uh figures of of modern day um of theater and broadway and really changing the way that i think broadway and just musical theater is presented and written um that's just from a layman's perspective but um it's he's introduced as uh 
as uh, when Jonathan Larson is 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 uh, presenting uh, like early versions of uh, Superbia um, to this panel of actual uh, composers and writers that we have this little back and forth between some like Joe Schmo pretentious like caricature of <laughs> of um, a writer of like a critic a writer and and then with Stephen Somheim and I really love the the blocking of that shot because you know we we have Jonathan Larson in the middle and in front of him we have the snooty snobby uh pretentious self-righteous critic on his left or at least as like the camera camera left and then Stephen Sondheim really like dressed in light colors really well lit on his right of progress I mean just how like film language moving you go right that's progression progress um, as and then left is you know we're going backwards how they typically show villains how they show conflict is people moving from right to left it's either a villain or they're losing ground they're losing progress but if you move uh, left to right it's typically the heroes introduced in that way it's showing progress um, I believe the best example of that is Lord of the Rings when when the fellowship is walking closer to Mordor they are mostly shown in their introduction shots, establishing shots from from left to right, um, showing that progress. So I really like how Sondheim is positioned on the right, the 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 way that this is the right way to move forward, progress, and just completely like ignoring what snobby critic is is saying, and and then the, the retorts of oh we're just saying the exact same thing just a little bit differently oh but the music is just not that great actually i think the music is very small you've done a really good job yes yes i say the exact same thing um i think that those jokes are balanced really well um and then steven sonham saying like oh you're missing a song you need this moment here and i think it's it's coming from uh one of his, well, his idol, like he specifically references Sondheim a lot. Um, I don't know if he, if this is just like purely fiction or something that actually happened in real life, but um, at the end of the movie after, or towards the end of the film, when uh, Superbia is not picked up by anyone, you know, he gets a, a voicemail from Sondheim, which I believe was actually Sondheim before he passed away, because I was reading something that uh, they actually wrote him like a lines to say, and he, I guess, recorded them and then called back and said, hey, can I just redo that and just speak from the heart? And uh, and they, yes, and they said, go for it. So like that was an ad-libbed, like improvised moment from the actual Stephen Seinheim before he passed away in the film. That's very cool. Which, and I think that was one of those moments that um, everyone involved on set was like, oh, wow, like we actually are talking to, you know, a, a musical composing legend. Legend, yeah. Like in every sense of the word legend. And he just like improv this like beautiful, like, like heartfelt moment, heartfelt moment that is, uh, is really, really like the driving force of like the themes and who the character of Jonathan Larson is. Um, but I, and I, and I do like that idea of just like, you know, can't sit, can't wait to see what he does next. Like keep pushing forward, you know, and he asked his, his, um, his agent, what do I do next? Like you write the next one and then you write the one after that. And then you just keep yeah. writing. You just keep getting back to the grind. And, 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 and then that's where you get the, the, you know, the, the really pivotal, like stick to, you stick to what you know. 
and he start and he's been writing these notes throughout the entire um the entire film of just um like you know fear or love like why does it take a like why does it take something big a tragedy to change? I think. yeah yes and and again those are the again like you were saying if you have if you don't see rent like these are all themes that we're seeing in both take take boom but especially in rent um mm-hmm. and then we get uh i guess the number in the park with i think it's, i believe it's called why and another and this is more following michael's uh revelation to um or reveal that he has hiv and it's a song for michael about them growing up together and them you know being involved with everything you know being involved in a talent show when they were nine being involved in west side story when they were 16 and then they went branching pathways at 29 and i remember seeing an interview with um Andrew Garfield, and I believe it was this number that his mom passed away not too long uh, before they filmed this, and he used this moment as a cathartic release to help him like come to terms with his mom's death. And I think you really see that in the performance and just even like his vocal range. Um, I don't know anything about singing or like I'm not a vocal I can't even sing like I, I can barely hum but um, <laughs> I do watch a lot of YouTube videos of you know people analyzing this and uh, and, and just the range that he is able to get as even just as a layman um, like you can hear like you can close your eyes I feel like and you could invite you can hear the emotion you can or you can listen to this the um, the, the the soundtrack and you don't even see his performance you can probably envision how he's like what he looks like the emotions because you can just hear it in his voice and the performance doesn't break but it's just so filled with raw emotion that mm-hmm. you can't I, I feel like I like I, I was re-watching this uh the other night and uh, I felt like crying watch I did not cry it takes a lot for me to cry but I I had that moment of like you know if you cry that's totally understandable why you cry <laughs> because this is like pretty heartbreaking and beautiful and um and very emotional and very just raw. So um, yeah, I, I'm really liking this, this, these closing cathartic moments that Jonathan Larson as a character is having. And it's kind of wrapping mm-hmm. everything together uh, for our conclusion. And I think when you have that much emotion and with him going into it with legitimate emotion and using this as an outlet, Sometimes the best way to increase your vocal range is to not think about singing while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And he probably was not thinking about singing at all while he was doing it because a lot of times our brains will get in the way of what our vocal cords or bodies, if you're a swimmer or you know a runner, which is you know, my, I guess, athletic choice, (laughs) Um, but, but it's, it's a mind over matter type of thing. And it'll hold you back because you think, oh, I can't hit that. No, there's no way. But if you're just not thinking about it, you'd be surprised the range that you can get out of your own voice. And I'm sure he was working with plenty of vocal coaches and trainers throughout this entire recording, but 
Oh yeah, and and it, and then it transitions into our like our final like louder than words. Um, but we do get that that closing monologue or not monologue but a closing narration of mm-hmm. oh you know he you know tick tick boom was a one night only show and, and then he proceeded to write rent which is then that that context oh it ran for 12 years um but he died before he could before the first public showing of i, f- I forget specifically what it was but it essentially an aortic heart- aneurysm yeah essentially I, I i always viewed it as like heart failure mm-hmm. but um and I did a little research too, because I remember a lot of people, like, I, again, we mentioned the beginning, people were like, oh, he died of AIDS. And I remember being like, that doesn't sound right. And um, and I did the research and I think he was misdiagnosed uh, as like the, something, because he had like a congenital problem that was misdiagnosed as the flu. Didn't get the right treatment. They didn't do the right uh, scans, tests, diagnostic stuff. And then he ended up passing away and um and and again i think that that monologue or the the closing narration just kind of in my opinion detracts from that all i feel Mm -hmm. like we should have just had that montage of just you know tick tick boom like even if it's um actual um footage from the the rock monologue because andrew they they really nailed the look of of jonathan larson with uh andrew garfield or even if they did the recreation with with um with andrew garfield and then juxtaposing that with um or even just putting the montage with rent showing and and then uh anthony rapp saying oh like this performance and every performance will dedicate to our friend jonathan larson i think when you when you have the narration over that it you don't trust that the audience is able to put two and two together that he died um or if you even just like throw like i don't know flowers or like moments of people crying or like an obituary or something like something on there to like really be like oh in case you can't put two and two together like he died um so i i definitely didn't like that that uh that spoon feeding of the audience at the end because i felt like they were trusting the audience with these complex emotions of, um, of like marginalized communities, these ideas of legacy and um, like running out of time. But then at the very end, they're like, oh, just in case you missed everything, like he dies, um, which is the tragedy of it. Um, and that was- And then also weird. rent in case you didn't know. Yeah, which yeah. like, yeah, we have to make references around, even if like the references weren't explicit throughout the entire, um, well, I mean, explicit if you know the material, if you don't know it, it might yeah. just be jarring. Um, but, and that's kind of our, uh, our ending. And I really do think that um, it is interesting that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, like he has that flair. Cause I even think the ending of this movie, it, it goes out on that, like hold the high note, we're just going to be cresce- like a crescendo of everything happening. And then we hit that final note and then the lights dim and then the credits start rolling. Like it, it feels like this comes from someone that knows theater and how to go off on the highest note possible, as opposed yeah. to something like La La Land, where it just ends on a flicker of a note, which has its own, has its own thing, which probably works a little bit better in film. But when you're making these grand musicals, they end on these big notes. And 
especially in theater, the bigger, the better. Like this goes out on that high note of just like the crescendo of music and lights and, yeah. and holding the highest notes for like a very, you know, extended period of time and it ends. And I'm left, I guess we can get into our closing thoughts. I'm, I'm left speechless and really invigorated. Um, this, like I said, I've been wanting to talk about this movie since I had seen it. And I've returned to it a few times, uh, definitely before this review too. And it always makes, I always want to be able to talk about it, but I don't want to, I didn't want to do it by myself because I didn't think I would give enough context, perspective uh, to do it justice. Um, And this was one of those films that when I watched it, it immediately inspired me to want to go create something, whether it be a podcast and, uh, or write a new short, which I have been like intermittently writing something new, but it all started after I watched this. And, and I always, whenever films do that to me, I always want to talk about them. Um, so I do appreciate you agreeing to uh, come on and talk about this with me um, because it has been something I've been wanting to get around to for quite a while for, I guess the last uh, four five months now I've been wanting to talk about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um yeah, Lindsay, what are your closing thoughts on Tick, Tick, Boom? I very much relate to your end feelings of, of this, this whole thing. After it ended, I, I mean, the whole journey that I went on throughout the movie was just fully, I'll say geeking out over it. I mean, every, there were every chord, every harmonization uh, every bit and piece was something that I just I I was glued to it the entire time and then you're right after it ended I was like oh okay now what's my next thing what what am I gonna go do after this and the answer to that is podcast with you (laughs) but but there will be more that comes and I think that this did, uh, you know, a great job that, you know, saying of showing that these great artists struggle sometimes and they have to find their way as well. And whether you're a great artist or not, you can struggle. And every decade, every generation has like these culminating moments that lead them to create these masterful pieces of music or art or theater or something like that and that's when when he wrote down why does a tragedy have to happen um for I can't remember the exact note but we just talked about it Mm -hmm. was was one of those moments where it's like yeah that's that's true but out of that comes such powerful artistic moments I mean, look at, and I know I've referenced like rap and hip hop already, but I mean, look at that. Does art imitate life or does life imitate art? And it's a little bit of both, but it's how we as humans experience the world around us and how we can influence the world around us. And seeing all of the facets of that in and out of this movie was really inspiring. And it does, it makes you want to go out and like create something beautiful. Yeah, well said. And so I guess we can get into our uh, recommendations as well. So I mean, I think it's 
clear that we both recommend this. Um, so how we've been doing it on amateur tours is um, we I, I've been doing like out of 10. It's kind of like our old school what we used to do in the, or what we did like way back in the beginning. But I also with I do it with letterbox. So I believe that's out of uh, four stars or five stars. I mean, I'm actually just pulling up my letterbox right now. So it's out of five stars. So um, for Tick Tick Boom, for my letterbox, and it's straight from my letterbox, I gave it a four and a half stars. Um, I think the only reason I didn't give it a five was just because I thought um, some plot threads could be just pulled a little bit tighter. But I also, mm-hmm. and also with like that closing narration, essentially like five star movies are those that I think are like, near perfect flawless. and yeah om- like almost flawless masterpieces and um while this is close there are some you know bits that i think could have been cleaned up and probably excised or not needed but still four and a half is is very good um and i would give this a nine out of ten um highly recommend this movie i i think everyone should see it and like i said i think this is how modern musicals should be progressing you know we have nice ecstatic energetic um editing and and cuts and uh and acting and flair but um it also does call back to what inspired it um and just kind of like it it knows where its roots and it knows where it's coming from but it also does its own thing with it as well um or it leans into uh it leans into its own style so uh really do appreciate it and uh i do really enjoy it so Lindsay, what about you yeah, I I would give it, I think I'm right there with you on a four and a half. And I want to, I don't know if I'd quite give it a nine star, but I would definitely recommend it. It's close to nine or nine, one out of 10. On a scale of one to 10, I'd give it, we'll go eight and a half. It's, it's not quite a nine. I would highly recommend it. But I would suggest that before you watch it, go give Rent a look first Mm -hmm. and then get into it just to give a little bit more context to to uh, what you're watching. As a as a quick, I guess, like a last note on Rent, would you recommend the the film or would you recommend like the final cast recording Broadway if you've seen if you've seen that? Cause I've seen both and I feel like I would recommend the, the, the theater filmed production of it. Cause it adds yeah. a little bit more context than. The yeah. Movie. That, that would be a more authentic representation of, of this film that we of tick, tick boom. So I would, I would recommend that, but if you don't have access to that, I think the movie will do it because the movie still mm-hmm. uses the, you know, a lot of the, same music so yeah and the flair you still get the idea yeah all right cool all right well Lindsay, do you have any plugs you need to do i don't know i mean if it's just film strip or you have other projects that you'd like people to uh check out here's your time to plug those hey thanks yeah right now it is just film strip so give a give us a listen crossover to film strip pod that is the one that i am on we release a new episode every other week on Mondays. So give us a listen. We have over 300 in the backlog. So we've probably done a movie that you've liked uh, at some point, I hope. So 
Give Even stuff that you've never heard of before either. <laughs> and also stuff that you haven't liked. So I also recommend listening to those because a lot of times we do not shy away from speaking our true feelings. <laughs> An absurd absurdity <laughs> yep. too. I was, I was listening to this one not too long ago and I was like, I can't believe they're talking about this right now. So um, was it yeah, Howard no. the Duck? Because that was a good one. <laughs> it was, oh man, it was one of those obscure horror movies that I was like, I'm never going to see this. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think oh, I know the man. one you're talking about. It escapes me now. I know. I, now it, I'm, was, I'm, it was like Silent Night, Deadly Night oh, 5 yeah, or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was one of those. That was like, a good I, one. <laughs> which I even just like listening to it I just felt skeeved out for you guys where I was like uh that's just gross and I think that at the end oh, yeah. the sentiment was also was there as well gross. but yeah guys yeah. film strip I know I plug it a lot but if that sounds like something that's up your alley go check it out because um they got a they got a mix of uh, something for everyone but with that guys uh Lindsay thanks again for joining me I really much appreciate it and everyone you can follow uh the show on Twitter at Autors Pod and you can email us with any questions comments or concerns at the amateur podcast at gmail.com and as always see you next time